0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to actually get into the text fairly quickly in this sermon. So Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. We're going to continue, uh, obviously, in our series in Mark. This is... um, an interesting time because remember, at the beginning of the year, we really wanted to start pushing discipleship. So that is still our plan. like I feel like we've still been consistent in that. And just providentially through us just going verse by verse through the book of Mark, the chapters 8, 9, and 10 have a lot to do with discipleship, and that's where we're at. And so we're going to be looking today at the cost of discipleship, what it means to serve, what it means to be served by Christ. Uh, And so we're gonna look at that in our text here. So again, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. I know I've had you guys up and down a lot. If you could just one more time stand with me to honor the reading of God's word this morning, his perfect and infallible word. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able and Jesus said to him to them the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant but it is for those of, for whom it was it has been prepared And when the ten heard it they began to be indignant at James and John and Jesus called them to him and said to them you know that those Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would bless this word. Lord, I pray that I would speak no more or less than what you would have. I pray that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus now is on this journey. He begins this journey to Jerusalem. It was, if before chapter 10, you could highly speculate that Jerusalem is going to be where Jesus' life is going to end, but now we know for certain that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for one thing in mind, and that is his crucifixion. He knows that he is in his last moments, or coming up to. And so in these chapters, we're going to see his journey and how it's going to come to an end here on earth, momentarily that is. And in verse 32, it says that, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. I... I I quickly jumped over that, and then as I looked back in my prep time, I was thinking, that's important. Jesus is the one that is leading the way. He is before them, possibly far ahead of them, and they're amazed and afraid. So they're standing back, the people who are following him, his followers, the disciples, are behind Jesus, and Jesus is on this path. His back is facing them, and he is walking to Jerusalem. And they were afraid of this. Because he appeared to be a man on a mission, right? I mean, they're like, Jesus normally walks with us. He normally is always right there aside of us. But it says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were hesitant. Jesus was not. I mean, we're, this is getting deep right away. I think rightfully so, though. Let me just remind you that your hesitancy does not stop Jesus' mission, His disciples' hesitancy did not stop where he was going. He wasn't going to walk any slower to Jerusalem despite their fear and amazement. One might only speculate that possibly the words of the prophet Isaiah were running through our Savior's mind at this moment. In Isaiah 50 verse 7, it says this, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus knows that he is about to put his face into something that is going to be very, very difficult. And he leads them, and the way that he leads them in this moment unnerves his followers. Jesus explains to them what he's doing, and he's so specific Just in verses 33 and 34, Jesus gives them eight distinctive things that are going to happen. He says this, number one, we're going to Jerusalem. Number two, the son of man will be delivered over to the chiefs. And he says, and then we will be delivered over, and then he will be delivered over to the scribes. Fourth, they will condemn him to death. Fifth, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Sixth, they will mock him, spit on him and flog him. Seven, they will kill him, and then finally, three days later, he will rise. Jesus gives them the exact prescription of what is going to take place. God sovereignly and providentially has laid out the road that he will walk. The plan that he will accomplish and is heading in the direction of the things that he is speaking of. Which by the way, this is no different than our own lives, which we can take comfort in that God orchestrates the steps of our lives down to the very detail, the very final detail, our very last breath. He knows there are no accidents. As Sproul used to say, there are no rogue molecules. There's nothing that's left up to chance. God knows it all. He is perfectly sovereign. He knows every step. And Jesus was explaining this to his disciples that I know the steps that are going to take place and he's going to take them. There are three passion predictions that take place in the book of Mark. This is the final one. So we saw months ago, and we were in chapter 8. I mean, last year we were in chapter 8. And through it, we saw that the disciple he's, he tells them, look, this is going to end, and it's going to end with my death. And if you remember, Peter is the one that jumped up and said, this is not going to happen. He rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus in turn rebukes Peter. And then in chapter 9, the very next chapter, we see his second passion prediction, Chapter 9, verse 33, it says, what were you discussing on the way? Again, they were walking and he heard the disciples chatting behind him. And he says that, but they kept silent because it was for on the way that they had argued about who was going to be the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. Maybe 10 of them got that lesson, but we know at least James and John did not. Right? That they are on this way and Jesus is saying, this is, my, this is what is going to happen. And so in, ver- in chapters 8, 9, and 10, there is great hesitancy at the thought of Christ, their Christ, their Lord, their master, their teacher, leaving them. And so here in chapter 10, we have where Jesus gives us his final prediction in Mark. And again, some of them miss this. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, what do you, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he says to them, What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us that we would sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. James and John are Jesus' cousins, by the way. So they are family. You know, it's good to have family And your family, you know, you feel that you know them hopefully better than you might know anyone else. So there's this connection because you are blood. And so James and John felt this sort of, you know, deep connection with their cousin who they were following and that they knew that they were in relationship with. And they have this thought of, we need to go to him and say, would you, I I know that you just said all those things, but would you mind just, can we just talk about the seating arrangements when we get up there, man, church people love their seats, don't they? <laughs> you ever sat in, a, in someone else's pew? You know, I mean, I'm I'm old school, so, you know, I knew where, like, Sister Bandy was going to sit. I knew where Sister Carrie was going to sit, and you didn't sit in Sister Carrie's seat. You know, that was, and it wasn't because she was going to put a stink, you know, there wasn't going to be an issue, or maybe there could be, but it was just, you had to be careful of which church person's seat you sat in. I remember one Sunday, in fact, growing up on April Fool's, the church decided, I don't know, I was a kid, but they decided just to, everyone just sit in different spots. And in my, in my pastor growing up, you just have to know the guy, but this threw him off big time because church people are people of routine, right? You kind of find your little spot and you like to sit there and that's where this is kind of your little home. Well, James and John were like, hey, can we just talk about the reservations, right? Can we talk about our seat placement?" And then Jesus they say to him we have a question and by the way what we're about to ask can you just kind of go ahead and commit to before we before you give an answer children do this don't they before I, before we dad before you know I ask this would you mind just go ahead and saying yes to it and that's automatically going to be a no <laughs> right whatever is going to follow like you know it's going to be either unhealthy or unsafe Well James and John do the exact same thing and also resulting in unhealthy and unsafe. This wasn't a good question to ask. But then Jesus asks a very profound question. What do you want me to do for you? Because you see, Jesus has just told them what he's going to do for them. And it's beautiful. In fact, it's the most beautiful. And he's laid this out and and still they have desires, When we have desires that go beyond what Christ has already provided, then we're looking beyond him. And that's sinful. And that's where they are at in this place is that, you know, can we just have the closest seats? And so here in their question, James and John only get one thing right in it, and that is in your glory. That we can sit with you, that one of us could be at your left and one of us would be at your right in your glory. And imagine had Jesus said yes, the the argument that would have ensued of who's going to get to sit at the right and who's going to get to sit at the left, right? Because then you got another dilemma. Because one's going to be feeling like a little bit higher place of honor. And so they come with the idea that it is correct that it is going to be, that he will be glorified. They're correct in saying that Jesus is headed to glory but as far as how the glory would come, they don't get it yet. They needed a discipleship lesson on a cup and a baptism. Again, every time there's a passion prediction, Jesus confronts them in their error and then disciples them. This is, this is a beautiful part of the church that's so often missed that we will, we we're okay at times at confronting people, but then to disciple them afterward. That's how you really care for someone. When, the, when one of the sheep are broken, you don't just look at them and say, get over your brokenness. You say, how can I help you? How can I mend you? This is what Jesus is doing. He sees their hearts and he knows that their questions are from a place of a sinful place. But instead of just and yes, he does call them out, but instead of just doing that and ending there and continuing on his walk to Jerusalem, he tenderly begins to disciple them. But their question does reveal their hearts in two different ways. Number one, it's that they had a superficial understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus at this time, what it meant to be a disciple. They were again thinking like the perks. you know. They were, they were thinking about the things that they were going to get out of it. Like they, I think that James and John were coming to the conclusion that, okay, this is going to end for him. So, like, can we make sure that everything's going to be okay after that? That's what they're wondering. So, it it shows their superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Secondly, it shows their inflated opinion of their own importance. They thought they were a, a part of this. I mean, and they were, but they were just, they were side characters. They were extras. They weren't the protagonist. And notice again, Jesus has no problem leading them to Jerusalem. Let me say this. If they all stopped and decided to go back from wherever they were coming from, Jesus would have still walked to Jerusalem. We know this undoubtedly because we know that the disciples, many of them weren't there at his crucifixion, and he didn't need them there for his crucifixion. He was going to accomplish this on his own. I, I praise God that he graciously gives us one another. Because I, I want to say this, I need you. I need you. Every one of you in this room, I need you. I need you in my life. I, when, we're setting up these, when I'm setting up the chairs here on a Sunday morning, I need the conversations, the silly conversations that I have with Dale and Ben and Greg and Danny. Like I need that time. And when we, when we pack up, like some people think of it as work. I think of it as like, this is stirring my affections for the Lord being with God's people. I need to be with God's people. And I hope that you have a strong desire that when you, ha- when you go through a season maybe where you have missed church or for whatever reason you've been out because of circumstances or because of just your own choices, I hope that there is a longing to be back, not just in the presence of the Lord, but in the presence of his people. Because God gives us graciously to one another. To Adam, he gives Eve. To Moses, he gives Aaron. To David, Jonathan, Ruth, Naomi, Esther, Mordecai, Job, Elihu, Paul, Timothy. He gives these people other people. But Jesus, Jesus came to accomplish something that he could only do on his own. Yes, the disciples were there and they were great companionship and great fellowship. But Jesus came to accomplish something that no one else could add to. As it's been quoted probably more than any other quote in in Mosaic, Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That is it. We contribute nothing. When Jesus goes and dies on the cross, it wasn't James and John who were there taking any, any sort of nails to their wrists. It was Christ alone. When we sing Christ alone, we mean it. When we say it is only but you, We mean it. And so Jesus is going to be gentle but firm with his response. Here is where he compares his approaching suffering and death to drinking a cup and experiencing a baptism. So John and James, they want to jump in. They want want to jump past the suffering and go straight to the glory, which I would say, don't we all? Don't we all want to jump right past the, the suffering and go straight to the glory? I've seen, I mean, that's how we, the, the, the scams of the world, the, the get rich quick, is get, just don't even do the work. Go straight, to the, you know, go straight to the six-figure living. I've got a way that in six months, you can go from nothing to six figures, past the suffering, straight to the glory, scamming everyone. And here, the, here James and John are trying to get past the suffering. We don't want to talk about the suffering. Let's go ahead and get to the glory. So sadly, James and John fail to see the pathway to glory. They fail to see that the pathway to glory is always suffering. Before the crown, there is the cup. That is what they're, they're about to see. That's what they're about to witness firsthand. Jesus knows he's returning to glory, but he knows that before there's a crown, there's a cup. Before the blessing that flows, there is a baptism that overwhelms and drowns. That's what Jesus is explaining. He's like, guys, you don't understand. I'm about to drink the wrath of God and be drowned in the baptism. Drinking the cup with someone in scripture means often sharing in that person's fate. The cup was often the common picture, like I said, of God's wrath of ju- judgment. In Psalm 75, 8, it says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dreads. What, dregs. What he's saying is there is a cup of God's wrath, and it's going to be poured out onto the wicked. And Christ is saying, I'm going to absorb that, So similar to the cup, Jesus' passion and death were a baptism. He was being overwhelmed, flooded, and immersed in the destiny planned for him by his Father. This, was a, this is a grueling journey for Jesus, especially because he's having to continue to teach along the way. I mean, so it just, it just shows you again and again the long-suffering that Jesus has. When Kelsey and I come to our absolute wits end with our children, because they're children, right? You've, you saw at the beginning of service, children, real children, unoccupied by parents, they do what children do. And when we come at our absolute wits end, I'm, we have to come to the position of the father is far more patient with us than he is asking us to be with them. He's far more patient with me. And that changes my, that shifts my perspective of, of that is how a loving father looks at me and is so patient with me. 32 years old, still stumbling, still tripping. I will, I will stumble over the threshold of heaven by the grace of God, not by my own works, but by being pulled through by Christ. And so we see Jesus says to them in verse 38 in our text, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized? And then the next verse says, we're able. <laughs> yeah, we're able to do that. <laughs> I mean, we can, how, how could it, bad could it be? You know, drink a cup, have a baptism. We've been baptized. They didn't know what they were saying, obviously. Now, last week, remember, I said, When the rich young ruler had said that he, I've kept the law. Remember, I said no one was laughing. They thought he was serious. In this moment, people were laughing. The disciples were mad at this because some of them were actually starting to get this to a degree, but we are able, they didn't know what they were talking about, but one day they would. Jesus tells them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But in order for them to walk the path of taking the cup in baptism, they would have to fix their lives after the pattern pattern of Jesus, which is through divine enablement, not of human inclination. Meaning this, the road that Christ has called us to requires divine enablement. If you are living a life in which the Holy Spirit is not helping you in your efforts, you are not a Christian. If you need nothing, if you need no help from the Lord, you are not serving him. This is not by human inclination, but by divine enablement. And they would one day learn this. In fact, James would be the first of the apostles to be martyred. John would experience all alone great persecution as he would one day be exiled to Padmas by himself, giving us the revelation of our Lord. So one day they would understand the cup and the baptism. Which also reminds me, let's be patient with one another. We, We are all on our, Our spiritual this spiritual journey, and we are all in different ways learning and maturing, and and those sorts of things. And we can never, we should never get to a place in our maturity when we look at someone else that's a little bit further behind in this journey and understanding who Christ is. We should never look at them with a smug attitude, as if we've gotten there again on our own human inclination. Remember, your sanctification is divine. This isn't your own work. You aren't just getting better on your own. And so he shows them that one day they would experience this, they would understand this, but at this very moment, they were driven by selfish ambition and a lust for position. In this world, and in this climate, in the Western world especially, the more people that you have serve you, represents often the more important you are, correct? If you see someone who has got an entourage, that's something special. If you, uh, if you walk through a, a mall and you have... Do people still walk through malls? I don't know. If you walk through somewhere... And uh, Trader Joe's, I don't know, something millennial. uh, uh, If you walk through a store and you have cameras all around you and and you create a little posse, even if you're pretending, people, it's going to turn heads, right? You've seen people do this and and joke, just saying like, you can convince anyone that you're important. Just as long as you have people around you that are saying, he's important, (laughs) right? Look at this guy, he's important. I mean, we have men and women around the world who are carried on, things being held by men and, and people look at them and whoa, what an important person. So many people serve you. And so in this world, the more important you are, the more people you have serve you. But Jesus says, but it must not be so among you. He's saying in in his world, the more important you are, the more people you serve, so the more important you are is not it's not reflecting by how many are serving you, but the more important you are is represented by how many you are serving. Jesus opposes the mindset of the world, and so must we. So must we. What a what an upside-down view of how we so often fall into the temptation of wanting to be served. It's in our nature. And by nature, I mean our wicked nature, right? All exclusive. That those are a few. Those are some words I like to see on the vacation package I'm going to purchase, right? That I can sit down. I don't have to worry about a single thing. I can sit down and relax. And people will come to you, and they'll serve you. And what would you like for? What would you like to eat? What would you like to drink? What would you, where would you like to go? But Romans 12 2 reminds us of this do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to do something great for the Lord? Awesome. Well, he says then you should become a servant. He pushes it. Further, and he pushes it even further in verse 44. He says, You're not just a servant, but become a slave. He's saying, Don't just serve, but become a slave. Be utterly sold out to this. Jesus has told them that he will die in Jerusalem. And now he tells us why. Look at verse 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes a promise that no other religious leader in the world has made or could make. Listen to this. Please, hear what I'm saying. That Jesus came to serve you and me Not just as our example, but as our ransom. There's a big difference. There are wonderful examples on this earth, men and women who we can look to and say, "Wow, I want to be just like that. I want to paint T-shirts just like Dale. That's amazing. I want to. I want to do this. I want to be just as tall as Greg one day." There are people that we can look up to, literally, and say. I want that. That's amazing. But Jesus came not just to be an example. The 90s got it horribly wrong by just pumping into our, our brains what would, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I mean, we had it on everything, didn't you? I, it wasn't a basketball game I would dare play without my WWJD bracelet. I wouldn't dare, both wrists. Yes, what would he do? But what did he, what has he done? Not just his example, but his ransom. He hasn't just come to say, this is the way that you need to live your life. He has come to say, give me your life. Because he will live it. He has lived it perfectly on our behalf. William Lane said that the reveal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus could have come anyway. He could have come as the king of kings by our standard with riches and glory. That's what they were looking for. That's what some are still looking for. A savior that would come, that would be a political figure, that would save them from tyranny, that would save them from oppression, that would save them from their financial burdens, that would save them from the things here and now that we see right in front of us that we say, I really would like that fixed. And if he came here and he gave the greatest TED talk that had ever existed and it changed our lives and our financial situations and our marriages got better and our kids listened the first time and our grass was always green and our house was always solid, that would just be an example. But he comes and he gives so much more, a ransom to be paid. And so I want us to just very quickly unwrap this profound comment that Jesus makes here. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me, firstly, let me say this. There is nowhere in the Bible, there's no thought in the Bible that the ransom was paid to Satan. Some people think that, that Jesus had to like, you know, fork over some cash. You're holding them hostage Here's, you know, however much. So there is no thought in the Bible that the ransom was paid to Satan. At the cross, Satan received only one thing and that is his defeat and ruin. That is it. He got nothing but his defeat. And also the the price that Christ paid was not taken from him. Let me be clear of that too. Nothing was taken from him, but he freely gave it. Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, in looking to Jesus, the, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says this, that he who for the joy that was set before him, it, he counted it joy to come here to this earth and to give his life a ransom. Do you understand John ten eighteen says it perfectly. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, for I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He says, I have the authority to lay this down, and when I am dead, I have the authority to raise it back up. Praise God. Jesus came to give his life, not for his life to be taken. He did not die despite God's love, but he died because of God's love. The cross is the self-substitution of God for sinful humanity. This is what we rejoice over. This is when we come into this place and we worship and we raise our hands. It's because we know that there has been an outrageous exchange We who are weak and fragile and are unable have been given everything, the keys to the house, adopted. We're not even worthy to be servants. And yet he calls us sons and daughters. Praise God. I'm sorry, I feel emotional this morning because I am overwhelmed at the scandal that has taken place that I, a sinner, lowly and weak, have been paid for. Praise God. The bloody cross of Christ was vital. Righteousness demanded it and love provided it. And so we are adopted into a new family because of his love. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus sees our pitiful and hopeless situation, and he pays the ransom. He redeems us out of slavery and brings us into the Father's house. What a glorious reality. Life is difficult. We all have our individual journeys and our our individual paths and circumstances and sometimes life is going really really wonderful and when life is going wonderful maybe in those times it's easier for you to serve the Lord and worship him and you're you're glad to come here but other times and we need to we need to understand why the suffering is taking place there is a future glory Can I I just say that? There is a future glory. The pain that you feel physically or in your heart or mentally or or, or spiritually, whatever whatever is crippling you at times, there will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow. But you know what? If those things still existed in heaven and Christ was there, I'd still go. I still want it. Jesus sees our hopeless situation and he pays the ransom. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.